Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless uh, not only the reading of your word, but also the proclamation. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be um, pleasing in your sight and would be used by you, by the power of your gospel, to make us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Every morning, ever since I started this series in Ecclesiastes, every Monday morning I have a mini panic attack. I begin looking at the text to prepare what I'm going to preach in six days, and I panic because I simply don't understand it. Uh, and I have a, a $60,000 education from Westminster Theological Seminary Conservatively speaking, I probably have $30,000 worth of books on my shelves to help me know how to read Scripture and, and teach Scripture. Uh, I have 22 years of experience under my belt as an ordained pastor. But I, when I read the passage from Ecclesiastes on Monday morning that I intend to preach... It might as well have been written in Chinese. No offense, Lily. <laughs> I tell you this because I imagine some of you are in the same boat as you uh, read through the book of Ecclesiastes. I wanted to tell you about my panic attacks to encourage you. Now, that may not be very encouraging to you. Pastor, if you can't understand it, how can I? Well, it's a difficult book to... Uh, understand um, if you just sit down and read it through in a cursory manner. It takes work. Uh, I thought that I might be a further encouragement to you to outline some of the steps that help me to understand the text. Now, you might, it's, it's just too small. This is just my, uh, my worksheet from, uh, that I print out on Monday mornings. And I read through it prayerfully a couple of times. And then I mark every important phrase or every important word uh, to help my mind focus on the message of the text. So everything in orange is what I marked as being important, something that I should think through and uh, focus on. I've also learned since I started preaching Ecclesiastes to to especially mark the words vain or vanity or empty or um, the phrases under the sun or uh, striving after wind. And so you'll see these pink, it kind of looks purpley, but uh, these pink marks uh, through there. This is the word vanity or, or the phrase striving after the wind. Uh, I also mark the word evil in there because that seems to be a synonym for the uh, for vain here in this chapter. Next, I typically mark how God is working with within the text. I want to see as a priority what's God doing. And um, in this passage, God only shows up once in verse two. Uh, he's You'll, uh, it's too small to see, but I marked him there. And he's not really doing anything real positive. In fact, he's withholding um, his joy 
from from this man we'll talk about in a few moments. And so, since the words vanity and evil, if you were to and the phrases under the sun striving for wind, striving after wind, if you were to count those uh, occurrences, they occur ten times in this passage. Um, in these short twelve verses, but God only shows up once. So we can guess right from the beginning, this is going to be a pretty morbid chapter of Scripture. This is not a, full, a feel-good chapter in the Bible. As I examine the important words and phrases, uh, the elusiveness of, of, of uh, satisfaction began to jump out at me. And so in verse 3, it says... Um, his soul is not satisfied. And then in verse 7, uh, it says uh, his appetite is not satisfied. In verse 9, it says the wandering. It talks about the wandering of the appetite. And so that's what's circled in red with the red arrows between them. As I begin to see, well, this concept flows through the passage. So maybe I should think about this. A little bit more. And once I began to understand that Solomon is saying that achieving personal satisfaction is impossible to attain without God, then the passage began to make good sense. One question plagued me, however. At the end of chapter 5, Solomon told us how true joy and satisfaction can be ours. He said at the end of chapter 5, and this is my paraphrase, all of life can be full of joy and satisfaction when God is your joy and delight. And so my question is, why does he return after making this statement at the end of chapter 5, why does he return in chapter 6 to the idea that satisfaction is elusive? And the answer to this question forms the basis for our thoughts this morning. And Chris, you can... Shut that down. I believe Solomon has returned to the elusiveness of satisfaction to underscore the powerful pull of sin. An unbeliever lives with their life, I'm sorry, an unbeliever lives their life with self at the center rather than God. They certainly, an unbeliever certainly does many good things. They uh, love their loved ones well. But the motivating, driving force is the false god named me, myself, and I. An unbeliever's life is enslaved by the pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. But they're never, ever able to finally grasp it. It's elusive. It's a striving after wind, Solomon says, because it slips through their fingers as soon as they are able to lay their hands on it. But understand that believers fall into the same trap much more than we'd often like to believe. <coughs> oh, excuse me. I thought I was blocking here. Um, look at verses 1 and 2. Here is a man who has reached the pinnacle of what most people chase after all their lives. The guy in verses 1 and 2, he has a fortune. And he's also famous. 
He's respected by everyone. He has attained everything he desires. But the joy and the satisfaction that we think that comes with this kind of life, it eludes him. So look at verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So he points to this man as, a, as an illustration of how satisfaction and how happiness eludes us apart from God. And then he points to a second man. This man lived the ideal life, yet without God. This man had a, a 100 children. And in verse 6 it says he lived 2,000 years. But it was impossible he says, for him to enjoy true satisfaction in life um, or, or in life's good things. Because without God, nothing has eternal or abiding significance. God is the only one who is able to give us true and lasting happiness and the fullness of satisfaction that our soul longs for. So look at verse 3 as he describes this second man. If a, fa- if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that, his, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. And then in verse 6, Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, two thousand years, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to to the one place. Methuselah, the guy who lived the longest in the Bible. This guy lives twice as long as Methuselah and never ever attains true happiness and the fullness of satisfaction that our soul longs for. It's obvious to us that Solomon is using um, poetic heightening to amplify his point. Who could father a, th- a hundred children? Who can live two thousand uh, years? So it should not surprise us that he also makes an outlandish statement to demonstrate how pitiful a well life, a well lived life is without God. He says that a stillborn child is better off than the man who lives 2,000 years with 100 children. Look at verse the, the end of verse 3. It says, His soul is not satisfied with life good, life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. In fact, verses 4 and 5 then talks about the stillborn child. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest. Talking about the stillborn child rather than this man who is described in verse 3 and verse 6. I understand that pro-abortion advocates use these verses to justify abortion. 
Jesus uses the same kind of poetic heightening when he says in Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus here is using poetic heightening as well. Or when he says in uh, the Gospel of Luke, if you don't hate father, mother, sister, brother, you're not worthy of me. That's poetic heightening to show us that he should be first. He's not literally telling us to rip out our right eye, cut off our right hand, hate father, mother, sister, brother. Using poetic heightening. So if the pro-abortion advocates are missing their right eye and their right hand, then I might... Uh, consider the sincerity of their argument. But I haven't met any yet. The soul is never, ever able to enjoy true and lasting satisfaction in life's good things, according to Solomon, because the soul's appetite is never satisfied for long. In verse 7, he compares it to the appetite of our stomach. We work hard to have food to eat, but then we go to work, work hard, and we get hungry again. And so the cycle goes on and on. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. His point is that we, we always have a desire for something more. And this is true of everybody in some form or fashion. This is the point he's making in verse 8. Whether we're wise or foolish, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, left to ourselves, there is always a bit of restlessness, a bit of dissatisfaction, a bit of frustration deep in our soul. There are times when it is more pronounced than other times. Different people experience different levels of frustration and restlessness and dissatisfaction. But it's always there. A constant craving across all of humanity. And Christians are not immune. James wrote to believers about this. He says, what, quarrel, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you as he's writing to the church? He says, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, you covet and cannot obtain, so that you fight and quarrel. As Christians, we have been freed from the slavery of sin. We are no longer bound to worship the false god of me, myself, and I. But we still must contend with the flesh, or what the Bible also calls indwelling sin. Many Christians underestimate the presence and power of indwelling sin. We still have the yearnings, uh, we, we still have these yearning desires for more. We still feel the tug of restlessness and dissatisfaction and frustration. We desire God to be first, but we seek to, to find our satisfaction in things in this world or in ourselves, or in our relationships, and we could go on and on and on. 
And when there's something lacking that we feel like we should have, whether it be in possessions or relationships or looks or anything else, instead of finding our identity and our satisfaction in being children of God, we grow dissatisfied, we grow restless, we grow frustrated. What Solomon is trying to get us to see is that in his very creative and penetrating style, is that there's nothing wrong with God's provisions for you, especially living at this time in this country. Everything we need to live is ours in abundance. You can have massive wealth, all the honor that can be given to a person. You can have a hundred children. You can live to be 2,000 years old. But you won't be genuinely happy unless you find your happiness in God. And we generally don't find our ultimate happiness in God because there's something very wrong inside us. The New Testament, as I've already mentioned, calls it indwelling sin. If we ignore this, or if we don't come to grips with with the reality of indwelling sin, we'll try and find many creative ways to mask over the presence of indwelling sin in our lives. As Christians, we try and mask over it with busyness in the church or with following legalistic rules. Sometimes we result to forms of mysticism or emotionalism. Often, we are guilty of substituting social niceties for godliness. Even a commitment to study theology can be a way that we mask over the reality of indwelling sin in our lives. And as long as we succeed in some of these areas, as long as we know our theology, or as long as we are known as a nice person and don't cause waves in the church and generally serve uh, and come more than just Sunday morning, well, we feel like we're right with God. Or at least if we know we have some areas in our life that we need to, to improve, we feel that we are at least better than the person at the other end of the pew. Related to that, if we've not come to grips with the presence and power of indwelling sin in our lives, we will see others as the problem rather than ourselves when we are experiencing this restlessness, this dissatisfaction and frustration. (coughs) Pointing out others' faults helps us to ignore our own. You know, the House of Representatives... Uh, just released this memo this week, um, released it to the public, and it stirred everybody up. And the various factions are pointing at each other, how evil everybody else is. And I think our society secretly likes all this finger-pointing because it allows us to say that the other side, those other people, are our greatest enemy. In reality, because of the presence, and power of indwelling sin, our greatest enemy is always inside us. For the most part, we control our behaviors. 
I assume nobody here has a warrant out for their arrest. You've been generally uh, law-abiding, controlled yourself out in society. But where the battle is fought is at the level of our thoughts, our motives and our desires. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Better is the sight of eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. When he speaks of a wandering appetite, the sense here in this passage is that your desires are wandering like an unfaithful spouse. Your appetite won't stay home. You've got a wife or a husband at home, but there's somebody else out there that's better. And he says that's what our desires are, uh, and our appetite is like. And so the appetite here is a metaphor for the indwelling sin. If God flashed our inmost thoughts on that overhead, <laughs> it would be devastating. You know, we can control ourselves. And we put on the behavior, especially on Sunday morning when we put on our Sunday best. Boy, oh boy, if God flashed our inmost thoughts and our desires. Calvin said in his institutes when he was writing about prayer, um, about some of the things that we ask uh, God for in private that we'd be ashamed to ask for in public because it would show our greed uh, so vividly. We, we cannot ignore or mask our inmost selves because that's who we really are. And lasting change takes place inside us before it translates out into our life. God deals with us at the heart level. He uses His gospel to change us inwardly. And so if you ignore the presence and power of sin, of indwelling sin, um, you will be unable to experience the life-changing power of the gospel. The kind of change that God is aiming at in His people is not just a change that results in a better marriage or well-adjusted children or a freedom from a few nagging sins. God's goal is that we would actually become more like Him in our thoughts, in our motives, in our desires, and then also in our actions. If you think that God's only goal is to keep you out of hell, You haven't understood the purpose of God's salvation. He wants to make us like Christ. Now can you see why Solomon uses such poetic heightening to make his points? The reality is that there is a war going on inside your soul. He wants us to understand how badly we need God. Do you understand how badly you need God? Paul Tripp says that his work with teenagers has convinced him that one of the main reasons teenagers are not excited by the gospel is that they think that they don't really need it. You know, they're under the parents' confines. 
The parents set the boundaries. Generally, as they stay within the boundaries, they feel like they're a pretty good person. And they don't look inwardly enough to notice and see the reality that there's indwelling sin dwelling in their soul. Teens, do you know that you need the gospel? And adults, do you know you need the gospel as well? Solomon concludes this portion of the book by saying, in effect, that's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. You may not like it, and there's no sense in arguing with God about it. Adam sinned, and we've been crying ever since. So look at verse 10. He says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and what is known to man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And then he says in verses, or in verses 11 and 12, he asks a couple of questions. He doesn't give answers to these questions. He just wants us to think. He wants us to engage. And so the two questions, verses 11 and 12, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his, li- of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He doesn't give answers to his questions. And I think the subtext here is, is there anything so important in your short, brief life that you would put it before God? You know, Solomon doesn't speak much about God in this chapter. He gives very little hope. God in the Gospel uh, is certainly coming in the book of Ecclesiastes. But it's not here yet. One of the commentators says this is one of the, chapter six is one of the most depressing chapters in all the Bible. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to point you to God's hope. God knew that we would struggle mightily with wandering desires, even as Christians. In fact, before He placed His love on you in eternity past, He knew you inside out, through and through. And He didn't find anything lovable in you or in me. He knew we'd often push Him back to second or third, even tenth place in our order of priorities. But in spite of us, He loves us. He loves us eternally and infinitely. He will always love us with all the love that He has in His heart. He loves us so much that He sent His own beloved Son to die for us. He loves us so much that He will never ever push us away when we crawl up into His lap and say to Him, Father, forgive me. I've sinned against You again today. We can never out His delight to forgive us. Additionally, and this is big, look back at verse 2. At the end of verse 2, 
Well, I'll just read all verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possession, and honor. Remember, this is the, the rich man. So that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. This implies that God is the giver of true joy and abiding satisfaction. And that is the truth. And so look to Him. Ask Him to make you satisfied in Him. Ask Him to help you find your joy in Him. He delights to answer those kinds of prayers because He delights in you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, His death and His resurrection was able to pay for all of the sins of our wandering hearts. All the sins of our wandering desires. All the sins of our delight in other things above God. We thank You for Your love. Help us to find our joy, our happiness, our satisfaction in You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.